Um, so Elizabeth, I'm going to start with you. Um, you, like many people, um, uh, currently are one of those people that, like, through crazy circumstances, God brought to Oklahoma, kind of for such a time as this. Um, your background is in biotech. You have a background with Praxis, um, in, uh, you live in the kind of venture world in Northern California. Um, um, you've, you, you know, you've built things at scale, um, and uh, you served as the Secretary of Commerce in Oklahoma, so you've been able to Science see. Science and innovation. What, oh, Secretary of Science and Innovation. Um, so um, what, what, what is the opportunity for redemptive entrepreneurs in Oklahoma in this season? I mean, what are the, your observations, just a couple of points about the challenges and opportunities as you've kind of, you know, and now working at OSU with entrepreneurs. Um, what, are, what, what are some bullet points that we should know about kind of what's cooking in the environment right now? Sure. I think there's a movement at, at work like we've never seen it before in Oklahoma, and it is about workforce development mm. and meeting the underserved where they're at. And that's happening across our state and within our state government in a way that I never would have expected when I got thrust into government, never expecting to be there. And um, you know, I think that's a very unique opportunity to exactly see um, people through the eyes that God would like us to see them through. And uh, as an entrepreneur, I think, you know, Typically, we're people that are very goal-oriented, and we're working to make money, right? And what I, what I would say I have learned is by opening up my hands, the return is greater than by holding tight and trying to drive that agenda. And I think that's very true within what's happening in the entrepreneurial ecosystem. The other point I'll make is funding is very difficult right now within the state. We've been working to actually put programs in place to fund what we call unfundable, meaning those um, foundations that are emerging, those nonprofits, those companies, those restorative justice type um, programs. We're, we've been looking to put money to work and make that available through different agencies in the state, but also through our church community. and trying to help fill that void. But I think that's one of the hardest things for the entrepreneur is really getting started and building that firm foundation, having good governance principles. What does that mean? It's not just the word of God for governance, but thinking about the implications of all the things he teaches us in his word about how do we manage money? How do we show up for people in the midst of that? How do we manage our time our own health and wellness and that of our families. And um, so I would say that those are some of the challenges. I think early stage entrepreneurs deal with all those things together at an accelerated pace, and that can create a lot of stress. And so thinking through your relationship with Jesus and how you're managing that and trusting him is mission critical. Um, uh, you go 
something incredibly beautiful and one of the unique things is um, you, Halo very beautifully walks that line between what I might call the overt and the covert as it relates to um, explicit Jesus-y language. Mm -hmm. you, know, can, you know, can you describe a little bit about, you know, the programs that you run and how even within your own team internally you kind of navigate the, um, you know, the overt versus the covert and back and forth? Yes. So I'll start with the overt covert. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. I've never thought of it that way. But um, when we founded the organization, we wanted to make sure that anybody would walk through our doors openly, no matter what they've experienced up until the point that they came to us. And that would include um, anybody with church hurt. And we wanted to make sure that we could offer them and love them, but we wanted them in the, to at least walk through the door. And so um, <clears throat> we actually employ a variety of individuals of different faiths so that everyone does feel comfortable when they walk through the door. Um, but the, the overt covert thing comes into play because behind closed doors or in our um, staff meetings, there's um, a, a space in which all faiths are safe. And so that, which is ideal for, for me as a believer, because I can come in and run the organization and say anything that I wanna say about Jesus when someone in the room isn't offended and they can talk about their belief system. And so rather than tiptoeing around it or um, being offended by somebody else's belief system, we just embrace the entire thing. Mm -hmm. And it's very, it's the same within the counseling room. Um, we don't talk about faith unless somebody in front of us expresses their faith and wants that to be included. But we operate within those uh, realms. And um, our leadership team very much brings in that faith piece. And so you can imagine having multiple faiths talking about how to lead an organization and honoring all of them. But it, it's, it's an excellent way to, um, to have diversity and to explore, but every single person on the team has to be incredibly safe to do so. Mm -hmm. And I think that we've been able to, to achieve that and it's, it's created a lot of richness in how we operate and then also we serve everybody, right? And so we have to, we have to, we can't be one way and serve everybody. We have to be diverse because we serve diverse. And so it's just, it's very rich. So we're covert in the sense that if you walked through our office, you wouldn't know what anybody's faith was until you started talking about yours. We're overt in that we will tell you all about the diversity and the multiple faiths that are there. So it's not a secret, it's just protected it's protected for you so that you get to be you while you're there. Mm, so good. If that makes yeah. sense. Makes beautiful sense and probably prompts some good questions. Scott, I want you to respond to this first and then um, Cindy, I want you to kind of, you know, you'd like to kind of jam on this for a second maybe, but um, you know, in the 11 years you've been working with nonprofit um, founders in particular, Scott, any patterns emerge that are kind of unique to nonprofit founders that, um, uh, you know, you can almost, you know, now you recognize it right off. You know, these are specific things. We've got a, we've got a good number of uh, executive directors and nonprofit founders in the room. So just curious what you guys see as unique to nonprofit Um, 
Well, one thing is that nonprofits always uh, have very lofty, ambitious uh, goals to do good in the world. And that's kind of the price of admission. In a business, in businesses, we're often, that, that's often suppressed. It often feels like, some people feel it's actually inappropriate to have social <laughs> missions in business. Um, but nonprofits are sort of, that's the, that's the price of entry. So you have, like I, one thing I mentioned earlier is you have this, um, we talk in the nonprofit playbook about the nobility trap and the stakeholder gap. And those are more, ins those are institutional and personal, but just to remind me what they are. The nobility trap is, because our mission is so lofty, everybody gives us a pass. And we actually find that we're not able to be vulnerable in the ways that we're struggling or broken. And we are able to get away with mediocrity. People, get, people allow us to be mediocre because we have such a good cause. And everybody is complicit in that <laughs> uh, because everybody wants to reward you for having a good cause. And so that kind of, uh, that accountability gap or that, uh, that we call it a nobility trap is that, so you actually have to work harder to find form formats and forms and relationships and structures for accountability in that sense. Because we like to say that mediocrity is exploitative because it actually defrauds those you're trying to serve and those who are giving you money. So um, there's that. Uh, the, stakeholder gap, the, the stakeholder gap is generally in, in businesses, the people who pay are the people who get the value. Customers pay, they get the thing. In nonprofits, generally, the people who pay, the funders are not the getters. They're not the people who, so that separate, that's a structural separation between the people who are providing the funding and the people who are getting the value or the people who are getting the beneficiaries. And so there's a tendency that, get, that really jacks up the way you actually go about your leadership because you essentially are, you wind up paying all of the, all of your, you wind up having your 80% of your imagination on what funders want <laughs> and 20% of your imagination because you're trying to solve for that piece. So there's that, that, that creates a kind of divided sensibility in nonprofit leaders, it seems to me. Um, and I think also another piece, I guess I'll stop here, another piece that comes out of um, having such a lofty cause is that you always feel unworthy of it. Mm. And, um, and so there is a lot of uh, identity pain and um, I th there's a there's a there's a certain kind of you know in a, there's a certain strain of Silicon Valley venture back based thing which is essentially valorizes failure essentially it it says go out and risk big and you know it's okay if you fail right there's a narrative that makes it that actually says that if you fail at something big then that just makes you stronger and better the next time because you didn't cave that doesn't happen in nonprofits basically you feel like you're letting down a kind of sacred thing. And so I think there's probably in some ways a more a, a deeper and more dangerous fear of failure in the nonprofit world oh because yeah. you're beholden to such a deep, uh, it's, it's a, such a deeply felt mission that everybody breathes out of existence for. Wow. So it's, that's a greater burden I think that nonprofit founders carry. Cindy, you concur with that? What would you add? I don't. I don't. Well, because I've only been in the nonprofit, I can't compare the burden to somebody else's burden. Um, I think it would, I think the failure thing for sure is always there, but the exit is, is a thing. Mm. So like if, you've, if you're so committed to this mission and this cause, leaving it is, leaving it's harder than failing. Failing yeah. to me, it was like a, a somebody else is deciding that I'm out. 
but, but once you start it, leaving it take, would take massive amounts of consideration. So, um, but aside for that, one of the things that I'm seeing in the nonprofit arena in Oklahoma City specifically is um, when I think about what, what he's talking about, um, the, the, what, what I've seen happen over the last probably, well, the last 10 years is that we, nonprofits were very siloed. And now we have gone out of our way to band together as executive directors of nonprofits. We've band together as who we're serving, how we're serving them. And when that whole movement started, um, everybody, all the nonprofits were invited to the table. Only some decided to play. The ones that decided to play together, some of the things that he's talking about that are hardships for nonprofit leaders aren't there anymore because we have community. So, um, which is before, and Christy, I don't know how you feel about this, but we're together. So we're not alone. So any risk of failure, any, even with funding, we're constantly talking about funding sources and sharing, we share. And so it's, it's a huge relief because you're just, you're just not alone anymore. And so as far as the redemptive pieces of Oklahoma City, there's massive movement in the nonprofit world to make that happen and they're all working together and it's, it's quite beautiful. I like being a moderator better than a panelist, so can I ask a follow-up question? Please, yeah. Um, so whether you call it collective impact or whatever the model is, but essentially mm -hmm. that model of collaboration around across organizations is very hard, takes a lot of extra yeah. work, and, and there's some disciplines to get it done. One mm -hmm. of the things I think, uh, there's a I'm gonna phrase it as a statement, I'm gonna ask okay. you that. Okay, okay. Um, is like one of the benefits of that approach is that I think for nonprofits, by definition, nonprofits are trying to solve very complicated problems that they can only hope to do one part of. They're very intertwined with everything. Mm -hmm. And when you're trying to raise money, it feels zero sum, and it feels like you've got to promise a bigger part of the pot, you've got to promise a bigger part of the solution when you know you're only part of it, and all, a bunch of other things need to work. And it seems to me when people get into these kinds of relationships, a little bit of that sense of, not competition, but like I've got to promise that I can get, we can get this all done through our nonprofit. Mm -hmm. You essentially promise beyond the boundaries and borders and banks of what you can really do. And you're able to um, really think of yourself as a really integral, important piece of mm -hmm. the whole. Is, do, you, do you find that, that? I don't promise more than I can deliver. Other, the other people. Yeah, the other, the other people. Founders, the they, other ones. They struggle with that. <laughs> um, I think, I think, okay, so I know exactly what you're talking about, and yes, I would say with specific funders, we, we could look at it and say, we will get the grant if we say these things, and it might not be what the organization needs or what the people need, um, but that comes with a responsibility on our part within relationship with our funders to start telling them the importance of general operating money and the importance of, and so, I think it is, I think the funders are starting to shift and hear that message. Mm -hmm. So we're, you just, yes, I think it's a, it's a trap that's always been there for nonprofits in order to stay alive and function, that they have to promise things just to get dollars. Um, but I, again, I think the trend is moving. Yeah. I would just also add that there are also nonprofits that can generate revenue as long as they're continually reinvesting that revenue mm -hmm. through products and services, mm -hmm. right? So I want to call that out because we sometimes think of nonprofits as just redemptive. I think there's a lot of nonprofits 
that might have a missional perspective, but that doesn't mean the same as redemptive. accelerating entrepreneurship. Talk to all of us, men and women, about what it has meant to be uh, an ambitious woman in your generation. And um, uh, just, you know, what, what, what nuggets would you give us about um, uh, gender and leadership mm -hmm. and this environment? Yeah. It's a little softball. Yeah. <laughs> The first thing I would say is, wow, is it hard? It's hard. Um, so I don't want to sugarcoat that. It is hard. Um, you know, born and raised in Michigan, spent most of my time working across the globe, but for California companies or DC companies, and then moving to the South five years ago. Mm. And those demographics are all very different in how women are viewed. And I think that's really important to say. It is about you know, more traditional cultures versus more progressive cultures. I think that comes into play, so I wanna say that. But having said that, um, to be an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley as a female is one of the hardest things possible because guess what? Almost every venture capital firm in the Bay Area is male yeah. and you're asking men for money to go do something and you're asking it as a female asks, not as a male asks. And so being able to adapt your style to the culture you're in as a female, I think is pretty imperative. Not to, not to advocate for showing up differently than who you are, that's not what I'm suggesting, but recognizing that the audience that you're with thinks and experiences differently and you need to see them through the eyes of Jesus, how they respond and how you have been made. And that's, that's a challenge. Um, but I would say it's possible. Uh, you know, I have watched YPO, Young Presidents Organization, is 35,000 chief executives from over 155 countries. Um, and the only way you get in is to have built a sizable company and we're talking tens to hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue or value um, by the time you are 44 years old. And if you're not a CEO of a company of that size and scale, you never get in. And it's by invitation only. Isn't that interesting? That sets it up for who gets in the door or not. But the goal of the organization is very missional. You would think, well, it's an elitist club. It's not an elitist club. It's about lifelong learning where people who are in a certain subset of entrepreneurship cannot trust other people or cannot share information because mm -hmm. in doing that and sharing that vulnerability, they put themselves and everyone who works for them at risk. And I think that's not understood. It's more like, well, these are just people who are extremely wealthy and successful. Well, first of all, they didn't start out that way. They had to build their businesses to that, just like everyone in this room. And second of all, they have to have a passion because even though you might have achieved that, 
you don't get in the door if you don't have a viewpoint that I have a lot to learn and the whole time you're in the organization, you still have a lot to learn and we learn from each other and prosper in that. When I joined, um, there were about 2% female out of the whole organization. Today we're at 20%, which pretty much mimics the percentage of women that are in leadership in companies across the globe. And it's taken women helping women to achieve that. So that's my last point is that um, we help each other. Um, you've got two women mentors here today that wanna help the women in this room, but at the same time are here to support the men who are trying to figure out how do I make this work as well and what value um, does a diverse workforce bring? And it brings a lot of value. Okay guys, we've got um, some time uh, to pepper these guys with questions. So let them have it. I'm not sure who your one on ones are with, but maybe you create opportunities. So um, yeah, fire away. ask a question back it's a tough one have you ever walked out of a room with some of your female leaders and said man she's so emotional or said to yourself wow you know there's too much empathy flowing around that she's not looking at the business problem I only ask that question because I suspect it has happened whether it's 1% of the time or 100% of the time that doesn't happen between men in the room. A man with another man doesn't say, wow, he's so emotional. You can, you can use that <laughs> F-bomb. He had a very emotional response to that. <laughs> you can use that F-bomb and it's fine. A woman uses the F-bomb and it's like she's crude, she's rude. Uh, you know, it, so I'm using that as an example because it is looking through the lens of Jesus. How is this person showing up? What is that unique attribute of God that they bring to that moment? Whether it's they're crying, male or female, whether they use the F-bomb or not. I think it's, it's saying, you know, why did Jesus, why did God gift this person to have those skills, whether it's leadership or empathy or whatever that is? And how do I lean into that? because I care about having that diversity.
they create a, a lot of very um, interesting conversations with individuals, yes. And especially because we do have somewhat of a, a global watch. Um, so for example, there this weekend or these three days, the Christian Alliance for Orphans conference is in Oklahoma City, which is another shout out to Oklahoma City because that conference attracts thousands of people from all over the world. Um, and at the conference, I, I find myself walking more in the, the Christian lingo, but then when people start asking questions about Halo, then I have to have these conversations about secular, and it's just this interplay that constantly is there. Um, so it is, it, is a, it is a challenge, but it really more so creates very worthy discussions. And I've always been of the philosophy that, um, like one of my favorite quotes is, healthy relationships aren't that fragile. So if, if I wanna have a, a, a very intense conversation with someone and it's healthy between the two of us, I should be able to have that type of conversation without judgment or criticism or reaction. If I get the reaction, then that's unfortunate. Um, and I don't come on strong, but we should be able to have a dialogue about multiple faiths and what that means, and especially what it means to serve, because we're serving everybody. But yes, it does come into play. thing right that's the that's the core of the whole thing I think um, I uh, I was thinking this morning as I was getting ready to do that talk talk I gave before you guys got here and um, I was thinking oh there's even an exploitative and ethical and a redemptive way to do this talk which is basically the exploitative would be I'm going to tell you false things so you'll like me uh, the ethical would be to do my very best to tell you true things and have you like me uh, which is my, which approval is my idol. Um, and so I, my whole, like I was talking with my wife about it last night and she was prophetically speaking a challenging word to me. Um, and we were talking about, she actually quoted a book, uh, a book, a little book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Does anybody know it? The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Um, 
it's based on, it's a quintile book, tiny book, it's based on one sentence, basically an edited version of one sentence. And that to me is the key. Uh, essentially it is, it is, because um, the, the ethic would be doing my very best to tell you true deep things and have you approve of me and how clever I was. Which is really about standing up there thinking, I am performing right now, I'm performing a good thing for good people in a good way. So totally in myself. <laughs> so I'm just gonna congratulate myself based on the feedback that I'm gonna get. And um, I think different people have, everybody has to have, uh, everybody finds different ways to decenter them, themselves from their imagination. Sometimes it's thinking of what we're doing as worship. Sometimes it's taking on, what, what's the worst thing that could happen if this doesn't go poorly? Sometimes it's trying to get as much in the hearts and look in the eyes of people until you're just completely trying to empathize. Uh, some, some of it is deep identity work that we're gonna talk about tomorrow. So I don't know that there's one thing, but I think that, um, you know, that classic quote of um, uh, essentially the gospel is not, or humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking less of yourself. I think, no, thinking less, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So that really, as someone who's just so aware of my own self-centeredness on that, being generous and being the good guy in the situation, being the one who's the first one to lead in this particular way, um, maybe it's the humility that just comes from screwing up all the time and having a good partner in life to tell you when you are uh, a good friend to them. So I don't know that there's a particular hack and I don't have more to say on it from these folks, but I, I do think that it is about getting your imagination deeply, finding a way to get your imagination out of the way and get your own identity out of the way and be completely as completely focused on the other as possible. I think we all have different ways that we've learned based on our idol patterns of getting there, of gospeling our way into it. I said uh, in one of the questions I got asked before I came, um, I don't know how it was phrased, but it was the question about, I can't even remember the question now. The answer yeah, I gave, striving. what was it? Striving. The question about striving. It was about uh, three things you were most proud of or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was the striving. And I said, um, I answered that question by saying um, that I really appreciated God's sense of humor in my life. Mm -hmm. I said that I would never marry a pastor. I would never live in California and I never live in a mud hut. I thought at the time, in my 20s, that a mud hut meant I was gonna go to the mission field and in some right. rural place right. and have no running water. The mud hut in my life yeah. is pride. And I live in that mud hut so that I can work on my humility. And I think about that every day. I have a picture on my desk of a mud hut and several scripture verses because it is the thing that I have to work on every moment of every day. It's not something I think you ever truly conquer.
you got the floor, Brian. You had another question. Uh, uh, well, one thing, Cindy, I mean, Cindy is classic sister does. It's incredibly, it's an incredibly beautiful picture she's doing in one piece of mm -hmm. Can you tell us a story? I'm sitting here cold. Tell us a story. <laughs> what kind of story about a friend? Well, it's like a, of, your, of how you work with your dentist. Oh, um, so I, I believe that our work is redemptive, um, and pretty much we started out that way. We founded the organization that way, so that all the people that work there, we hire based on fit within that redemptive culture. Um, and the hope is then, and again, it's it's a little bit easier when you are a nonprofit in that regard because we are called to be servants. I mean, we have to serve every day we get to serve every day. So we created the culture that way. So if we need more employees and we can't find employees that don't fit, we wait and we hold. And so we protect that culture um, very, very tightly with, within the organization. Um, so it starts, everybody who works there is fully aware of the redemptive culture, what that means, how we operate. Um, and it's interesting because we, um, because of our impact, we have a lot of people from all over that come to Oklahoma City to be trained in the stuff that we're doing, and they walk in the door, and sometimes they get a little confused as to what's happening. And we had, <laughs> we had this one um, person come in from another state, and she walked in, and you've got greeters at the front, you've got kids going around in scooters, usually there's a dog running around, um, there's snacks and water and all, all needs are met, emotional needs are met, physical needs are met, and this person walked in and I think it scared them. So they, they went into the training room and again, more people are talking, more people are saying hi, and it's, it's just a beautiful thing. And so they went and sat all the way in the back and just kind of sat down and just gave, gave everyone the look and it wasn't until the third day that they stood up and um, it was kind of, we have a closing ritual where they talk about one of the, the things that they've learned and he said, he said, I just walked in and I thought y'all were full of it. Like, there's no way that y'all could be this kind and loving. You guys were all fake as far as I was concerned. I sat all the way back here. And then at the end, he's like, now I realize that it is not fake and I hope to bring it back to my own organization. And so we have a lot of other executive directors that come and they feel the culture, they experience the culture and then take it back to their own organizations and try to instill it there. Um, but one of our core central programs is something called Making Sense of Your Worth, and it's an eight-week course for pretty much anyone from, from um, those with traumatic experiences and complex trauma all the way to just an individual walking the earth who wouldn't have identifiable trauma, who has low self-worth. And that is probably our most redemptive program that we do where individuals show up and they have all these insecurities, they believe all these lies about themselves, and then they go through this journey, a very independent journey in a group setting, where at the end, and Christy's, Christy knows people who's gone through it, but at the end, they come out knowing that they're precious and priceless, and they start this forward movement towards honoring their own worth, their identity, their unique gifts and talents, and um, we see them then going back to their families, to their places of employment, to the classroom, um, and that that trickle tri trickle effect of that redemptive piece that that then comes when somebody knows 
that they're precious and priceless is one of the most amazing things I've ever, that I've ever witnessed in this work. Um, people can heal from trauma and they can feel okay and they can think okay, but boy, when someone knows their worth and value, watch out. performance of those startups, you know where I'm going with this probably, we talked earlier about how does that connect with a redemptive business model in terms of how, do, how, how do you correlate return on investment to that, and both to the entrepreneur or to the outside investor, and should it have an impact in the conversation? Sure. Yes, yes, yes. Um, you know, I'll use the example of my, my current role at OSU. So I have this innovation foundation, and this foundation is made up of institutes focused around aerospace, advanced mobility, energy, health, and nutrition. And you say, okay, how does this all tie together? Well, you know, part of OSU's land-grant mission is to serve the community. That's how they get funding. And that funding comes in with a mandate that says your programs, your education programs need to serve the state of Oklahoma. So what does that look like around advanced mobility and nutrition? And well, would you believe that we're addressing the food desert that exists in Oklahoma? Because we've built a student farm where students are actually growing and harvesting produce that we then give to the food banks in the state of Oklahoma to disperse the families. We then track those families to see what their health comes, outcomes are as a result of having access to that food. And the money that we make on doing any of this, whether it's donor, or whether it's profit, because we do sell some of our agricultural assets, goes back into the university for education purposes. Now, I bet you wouldn't have thought about it like that until I just walked you through that. So technology is enabling being able to serve people and then being able to reinvest in people. And I can use that with advanced mobility and I can use that with energy or biological sciences, but um, I think we need to realize that 
our world is being built on technology platforms, whether it's AI and chat GPT, or whether it's advanced mobility with drone technology or electric vehicles. And those create job opportunities for people, and God has uniquely gifted people to do those jobs, to be engineers, to be physicians, and to be able to progress his kingdom for his purpose. And so it's a mindset, I think, that needs to be adopted. I wouldn't have taken a job at OSU at this point in my career. I, I did it because it had a very special mandate mm. around it. And it also progressed the work that the state of Oklahoma was doing and that I got to participate in while I worked for the governor. And I, you know, just my last point I wanna make is, it, it goes back to God gives us gifting. We don't always understand how he is going to use mm. it. And, you know, continually seeking and hearing from him directly, whether that's through prayer or worship or people in our community that we trust and are, are um, bestowers of godly wisdom, I think that is what transforms us as entrepreneurs, whether it's technology, a service, a, a foundation, I think, um, I think it's just leaning into all of those things together because they actually all work together for his good if we choose to see it through his eyes. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Sam, that's a great place to transition. Thank you all very much.